the Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Larissa, and the New Testament reading is found in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Rick. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in Luke chapter 24, verse 17 to 27. He said to them, What are you talking about as you walk along? They stopped, their faces downcast. The one named Cleopas replied, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who is unaware of the things that have taken place there over the last few days? And he said to them, What things? They said to him, The things about Jesus of Nazareth. Because of his powerful deeds and words, he was recognized by God and all the people as a prophet. But our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel. All these things happened three days ago. But there's more. Some women from our group have left us stunned. They went to the tomb early this morning and didn't find his body. They came to us saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who told them he is alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found things just as the women said. They didn't see him. Then Jesus said to them, You foolish people. Your dull minds keep you from believing all that the prophets talked about. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then he interpreted for them the things written about himself in all the scriptures, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Let's remain standing as we pray. And before we do, I just want to tell you, if you can hear the sound and the rattling, that's just wind blowing through the swamp coolers and the tin roof and all of that. There's nobody, someone's like, what are they doing back there? Nobody's doing anything. It's just windy. And this is an old building with a swamp cooler and a tin roof. So there you go. So you can now ah, relax and we'll pray. So Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you are a speaking God. Uh, We ask now that as we listen to your word being taught, that you would open up our eyes and ears to see you and to hear you open up our hearts and minds to know you and to put our trust in you and transform us, we pray, into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit to the glory of the Father. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
The business writer Charles Duhigg talks about a concept called a keystone habit. And maybe some of you will be familiar with his book, The Power of Habit. It kind of caught fire a few years ago because of the, the way it outlined the transformative power of habits and how habits work. But Duhigg also identified something that he called a keystone habit. And a keystone habit is something that when you change it, it kind of sparks a chain reaction. It's one thing that corporations or organizations or individuals begin to do regularly, maybe differently, and it sparks something. Now, Duhigg is careful to say this is not always cause and effect. In fact, it's sometimes hard to demonstrate a correla a co its correlation, not a, a causation. At the same time, there is a kind of chain reaction that happens with this. And a few examples he gives are some simple things. On a personal level, people who get up and make their bed every morning tend to be more productive with their day. You're like, oh, darn. <laughs> you know, strike one. Uh, another example Dewey gives is that people who exercise at least three times a week make better choices about their uh, eating habits. They consume less alcohol. They make other choices that impact their health in positive ways. Just the act of working out at least three times a week. Again, you're like, strike it too. Uh, people who journal. It was discovered that people who make a practice out of journaling tend to have more free space for creativity because ideas are getting down onto paper. There's something about changing one thing and it triggers a chain reaction into changing other things. Now, this is the time of year that we all tend to revisit our habits. This is the time of the year we say, you know what, it may not be that anything is different other than the calendar, but it's an excuse to introduce some new habits and some new patterns. The truth is there is power in what we prioritize. There is power in what we prioritize. There is a power in what we do first. There is a power in what we put first. It tends to set the tone for everything else. It tends to give a shape or a trajectory to the rest of our lives. So there are certain habits that can set us on a different course. It's one of the reasons why the next three Wednesday nights, beginning this Wednesday and then the two Wednesdays after that, we're going to gather together from all of our congregations at New Life Church. We're going to gather up at the big blue roof where the wind doesn't howl quite the same. And, and we'll have a great evening of worship and prayer the next three Wednesday nights because we're saying, God, we want to seek you first. We want to bring ourselves in worship and in prayer to seek you first. And so this morning we're beginning a series for the next few Sundays called First Things. And this series is all about what it means, what it looks like to seek God first. What does it look like to welcome, to participate, to practice certain habits that will aim our heart toward God, that will orient our life in the right direction, that will set us on a path towards life instead of a path toward destruction. The psalmist talks about these kinds of habits. In fact, Psalm 1, the opening psalm of the whole collection of poems and hymns and songs, describes the person whose life is blessed as the one who meditates on God's word. The one who says, I'm going to take in the word of God. I'm going to think about it in the morning and in the evening because if I will make that the meditation of my heart, that's going to set me on the path of wisdom and flourishing and fruitfulness. Listen, the gospel doesn't offer us promises of success in the external means, but it does offer us something better than that. It offers us true life, 
abundant life, the abundant flourishing life, you as God designed you to be. And so this is the paradox. When we actually seek God first, we come alive. When we actually decide to orient our heart and our lives towards the maker of heaven and earth, towards our creator and our redeemer, we actually begin to flourish. But when we put ourselves first, we say, well, let me put my goals first. These are my vacation desires. These are my investment needs. These are my priorities. And we make ourselves the priorities. And then we say, God, you'll fit in somewhere around two or three, somewhere down there. It's okay. You can fit in, but this is the main shaper of my trajectory. It ends up backfiring and bending in on itself. There's something about prioritizing the right things. And this morning in week one of this First Things series, we're going to talk about what it means to seek God through the Scripture. What it means to seek God through reading and meditating and praying and reflecting on the Bible, the Word of God. Now, if you're honest, just pause right here for a moment and check your instant reaction, check your reflexive gut level sort of reaction when I said we're going to talk about the Bible, probably if you're honest, you're going to say, "Ah," because I know I'm supposed to read the Bible. I know it's what Christians do. And maybe you even grew up in church where you sang that song, read the Bible, pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow. And you're like, I know, but it's just so hard, hard, hard. And the truth is this book is confusing and it doesn't read like a blog and it doesn't read like a Facebook post and it's much less interesting than a meme. In fact, sometimes Bible memes have done us a disservice because we see all these really beautiful Bible verse memes and you open the Bible like, this, this book must be full of memes. And you open it up and you're like, first of all, not very attractive. A lot of columns, a lot of words. And then you start reading and you're like, Oh, dear Lord. Look, I just opened, and it opened to Chronicles. Like, I guarantee there's probably never been a meme from Chronicles, you know? And so if you're set up to think that this is full of inspirational quotes, you're like, forget that. I'm going to find something else. And if we're also honest, it's hard to understand. Maybe some of you are used to hearing talks or sermons that make it sound like Christianity has lots of three keys and seven steps and five ways, and seven laws, and six ways, you know, and you're like, oh, that's amazing. I love these little listy things, you know, and you open up the Bible, and you're like, where are the lists? And like, Ten Commandments, there's one. But where are the other lists of things? I mean, I thought there was ways to guarantee stuff. And so some of you have even, you've even, on a good year, you committed to reading a proverb a day. And you're like, surely the proverbs are full of like wise instructions and, and, and sort of lists and keys to kind of a successful life. And if you work your way through the proverbs and you're paying attention, you'll recognize that the proverbs sometimes contradict one another. And you're like, goodness gracious. What? I mean, there's a, there's a chapter in Proverbs where one verse says, rebuke a fool lest he persists in his folly and the next verse says don't rebuke a fool lest he hate you and you're like I'm so confused I have so many fools and I don't know what to do with them (laughs) and then maybe to make it worse we don't actually know why we're supposed to read the Bible Like, why do we need to do this? Is is it because there are rules in this book and we need to kind of figure it out? There was a a contemporary Christian song in the 90s that that took the acronym B-I-B-L-E and said the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. All kinds of problems with that. Because first of all, if you actually read the Bible, the end of the story is not us leaving earth, but heaven coming down. So that's a problem. 
And, and, and secondly, this is not just a book of instructions. And if we want to read the Bible saying, I need to know all the rules because you're an Enneagram One, and you're like, help me, what are the things? I need to know the things. Will there be a quiz on the things? And there's so many confusing parts in this Old Testament, New Testament. Which one applies? Does it not apply? How does this work? I want to say to you today that we read the Bible because God is a speaking God. God is a speaking God. We don't primarily read this as a book of information to sort of cram into our brains for the test that determines where we spend eternity. We don't read this book because it's full of inspirational quotes. We read this because God is a speaking God, and this is how he has revealed himself to us. God has chosen to reveal himself to us. You need to know, if some of you have done missions work overseas and in other cultures, you will understand that not every religion has this kind of a God. There are many religions that have a distant God who does not self-disclose, who wants to remain hidden and angry and mysterious in the worst ways. It's the Jewish and Christian vision of God as a God who says, I'm leaning in. I want to show myself to my people. I want to make, I've made humans in my image so that they can know me. God is a speaking God. The great theologian, former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan, Rowan Williams, said, The Bible is not merely chronicles of past events, but rather lively oracles of God. I like that. Not just chronicles of, yeah, 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 it happened, but lively oracles. Now, right off the bat, depending on your different backgrounds and your introductions to Christianity, you already lean towards oracles or chronicles. If you've come from maybe a more Pentecostal or charismatic kind of stream, you're like, everything in here is the lively oracles. So you could be reading some obscure verse and you're like, God just gave me revelation for today. And it's a genealogy and you're like, it's, the, it's a sign we're supposed to get pregnant, honey, you know? Like everything is the oracles of God. Others of you, you're like, that is weird. This is just a chronicle. And so maybe you've come, maybe it's a Baptist or Presbyterian background. And you're like, you just read this book because it's just a necessary part of our history now. It's all just chronicles. And I want us to explore this morning what it looks like to see the Bible as a bit of both. A chronicle, yes. Chronicles, yes. But also oracles, the speaking words of God. I had a professor in undergrad at ORU who said, we read the Bible to know God and to become his people. To know God and to become his people. And so that's something deeper than the rules and instructions thing. That's something deeper than the inspiration thing. That's something deeper than the textbook information thing. It's about actually knowing God and then becoming his people. In fact, I'd like to suggest to you that God has chosen to reveal himself in the Bible through story. Through story. The primary lens to use when we read the scripture is to read it as a grand drama. A grand narrative that is unfolding. And so I want to suggest to you something that several others have said. Eugene Peterson has said this. N.C. Wright has said this. Several others have presented the story of the Bible this way. But I want to walk you through briefly this morning the story of the Bible in five acts. The story of the Bible in five acts. And we can't say all there is to say about this, of course, but we'll try to go quickly. Act one is creation. 
This is significant not just because it's God who created the world versus the world emerging by accident. It's in our con contemporary lens, we kind of see it as a, oh yeah, this is about creation versus evolution. But listen, in the ancient world, the fact that act one begins with a good God making a good world on purpose was like trolling all of the other narratives and the other gods of their day. Because all the ancient people, the other religions around it, the Israelites, they had their own versions of how the world began. And many of them had stories about the gods at war with one another, killing one another. And the creation of the earth was sort of incidental and accidental. And in comes a man named Moses and he says, no, 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 this is how it began. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You need to know that the story of the Bible is not a reluctant God who is annoyed with you, but a God who delights in you and made you and the whole world around you on purpose. This is not a God who says, oh, I can't stand this. Come up to my place. It's so much better up here. This is a God who said, I am in my being love, and so love has to flow outward, and so I'm going to create objects of my affection." objects of my delight. I'm going to create the sun and the moon and the earth and the animals and the creatures and humans in my image. In fact, I will bring humans so close as to breathe my breath into their nostrils. This is a God we see in Act 1 who creates on purpose and with pleasure. But Act 2 in the story is maybe the, the act we are all too familiar with. G.K. Chesterton famously remarked, it may be hard to find proofs for the existence of God, but we don't struggle to find proof for the existence of sin. And so Act 2 is about the fall. Act 2 is the story of how rebellion against God actually results in the fracture of God's good world. If Genesis 1 and 2 is the story of God putting everything in its place and for a purpose, then Genesis 3 through 11 is the story of sin disrupting that place and that purpose. Does that make sense? Disrupting that place and that purpose. If things feel out of joint, Genesis 3 through 11 is trying to tell us the story of that. And so you have human beings who were once walking with God in the garden, now hiding from God, saying, oh, we don't want to see you. You see male and female who were made to be together, to be one, now blaming one another. Well, she gave it to, well, he gave it, the serpent. And then you see shortly after that, the relationship between brothers, Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, a relationship that's supposed to bring strength leveraged when together being instead pitted against each other in competition and jealousy and rivalry. Urgh, the destructive force of competition and comparison fracture of that relationship and then you fast forward a little bit you get to the flood story now you see how the ground itself gives way and the waters from the deep rise up one of the consequences of sin is that the relationship between humanity and the earth is itself strained you read the headlines of the, the fires that are happening and ravaging Australia and you think God this is not how it was supposed to be correct the world itself is revolting against the human inhabitation of it. And then shortly after that, you get the story of Babel where societies are fractured into different groups by language and the development later of cultures. And this is the Genesis storyteller telling us 
You want to know how we got to this place where we fight battles against one another and how we have these tribalistic views of each other and why we're always competing? This is how it all began. It's one of the effects of sin. And so the, the Bible gives an account of a world breaking apart at the seams. But then in Genesis 12, if you've ever noticed, if you've ever tried to read the Bible from Genesis all the way through, which is one way to do it, you may have noticed that while Genesis 3 through 11 goes pretty fast, covers a lot of ground, all of a sudden in Genesis 12, the story slows down. In fact, a couple of years ago, we did a series on the life of Abraham because that's, that's really in some ways where the story of salvation begins. With Genesis 12, and we heard the scripture reading this morning from Genesis 12, where God calls Abraham. He says, look, I'm calling you. Why? Not just for your sake, but for the sake of everyone else. Notice that when God called Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you great. Why? So that you can have nice palaces and homes and brag about it. So that you can have lots of land and lots of cattle and Instagram hashtag blessed. He says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, make you great so that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. People, if there's one thing you need to catch about the Bible is that God has been determined from the beginning to make a family for himself. And so he chose one family for the sake of all families. In a way, if you look up and kind of see the story of the Bible as sort of like those, have you ever, <laughs> I can't think of Russian nesting dolls without, without thinking of Nacho Libre, you know. <laughs> But we won't go there. But if you ever think of those kind of, you know, a doll within a doll within a doll, the Bible is a story within a story within a story within a story. So you have God saying, Adam and Eve, you are the ones to have dominion over the world and reflect my rule. Okay, they failed. Okay, forget the human, the human race. Put that on pause. Let's choose one people. And so he chooses Abraham. And as the story goes on, you're like, well... The family of Abraham becomes the nation of Israel. And we're like, well, the nation of Israel is kind of a mess. They're rebellious. They're turning to idols, all of this stuff. And so God says, well, let's just choose one Israelite. And that one Israelite was the king. That's why the king came to be seen as the anointed one, the Messiah. And so if it couldn't be humans and it couldn't be one nation, then it would be maybe one person, one Israelite, one king. And yet the whole story of Act 3, the story of Israel, is the story of their failure. You're like, well, that's a pretty long story. Yeah, it is. It's a, in fact, the bulk of the Old Testament from Genesis 12 all the way to the end of it is Act 3. You're like, why is Act 3 so long? I don't know. Why is Two Towers so long in the Lord of the Rings trilogy? <laughs> it's the middle story. It's the middle act. That's how it goes. It's just long. But let me give you a few handles uh, 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 to help you kind of remember parts about Act 3. The nation of Israel has three main institutions, the priesthood, the kingship, and the prophets. Maybe one of the earliest institutions was the rise of the priesthood. But you see very early on at the end of the book of Judges that the priests themselves cannot do justice perfectly. If you've ever read the end of the book of Judges, it reads like a bad made-for-TV horror movie. I mean, it's grisly. These Levites decide to take justice in their own hands and they carve a body into 12 pieces and send it up. And it's their way of sending a message. But you get the sense at the end of the book of Judges, you're like, what happened wasn't good, but the result wasn't good either. Like, this is kind of a mess. And so you end the book of Judges and you open the book of Samuel with a priest named Eli whose eyes are dim and who's not even hearing the word of the Lord. And so you're like, are the priests 
going to be helpful here? Or are the priests themselves infected by the same disease to which they carry the cure? And you're like, yeah, the priesthood is going to fail. Then after the priesthood, what does 1 Samuel transition us to? We had a series last year on this. From the priesthood, we then are introduced to the monarchy, the kingship. And you're like, oh, a king, a king will save us. And you meet Saul, and you're like, yeah, not him. Nope, not him, not that guy. Then you're like, David, David, he's the king. And then you find that David is fallen and flawed and unfaithful. And you're like, well, Solomon, maybe his boy. Nope. I mean, <laughs> Solomon's like, you think my dad messed up? Hold my beer, you know? Sadly, that's what you're going to remember from this morning. <laughs> and by the time you get to it, you get actually Solomon's son is where the kingdom splits in two. You have a divided kingdom. The southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. One got the name Israel, the other got the name Judah. And the bulk of the Old Testament now is how the good kings and bad kings of Israel and Judah tried and failed to be faithful to God. And so there was one last hope, and that was the rise of the prophets. And the prophets would then say, okay, well, the prophets will rebuke the kings. The prophets will confront the kings. After all, Nathan was a prophet. He confronted David about his sin. And so you meet Elijah, and you're like, Elijah, he, he called down fire from heaven. The prophets will get the story back on track. Except one of the last prophets we meet, and next month we're going to do a whole series on this book, but one of the last prophets you meet is a chap named Jonah. And Jonah is such a bad prophet that when God calls, he runs the other way. You're like, that's not how it's supposed to work. Like, I don't know much about how this prophet thing works, but that's not it. You have Samuel, the first prophet, who says, here I am, Lord, speak. And then you have Jonah who says, oh, God, I'm going the other way. Like, something has gone wrong with this vocation. You see the difference here? And so we have the failure of the priest, the king, and the prophet. And by the time you get to the end of Act 3, the end of the Old Testament, right before intermission, if you will, you're left with the ultimate cliffhanger. And you're saying, who can save the world? We thought that one nation was going to be the carriers of the cure. Instead, they themselves are infected by the disease. Who can save us? And after 400 years of silence... Gospels open up with a genealogy. You're like, huh? Oh, but if you were paying attention to the story, you would know why it does. Because the whole story of salvation began with Abraham. And so that's why when Matthew's gospel opens up, it opens up with saying, from the seed of Abraham has come the only true Messiah, the son of David himself, and his name is Jesus. Jesus. That's the story. And so Act 4 becomes the climactic moment, the moment we've all been waiting for just when we thought all hope was lost and there was no way of avoiding disaster. In arrives the Messiah. You see why we get so excited around Advent and Christmas? Because we're like, this changed everything. And so Jesus brings together the whole story of Israel. In fact, uh, one of the reasons why during Advent we did a sermon series on all of these metaphors from the Old Testament, O Wisdom, O Dayspring, or Key of David, is to help you see that Jesus does not emerge out of nowhere. Jesus brings together all the threads of the Israel story. Why? Because in fulfilling the Israel story, he rescues the human story. I'm going to say it again. By fulfilling the Israel story, he rescues the human story. 
That's how it works. But sometimes, you know, we're, we're Western, modern, evangelicals, Americans. We kind of think that it didn't matter what race Jesus was, what, what ethnicity. Like, it, it could have been, you know, blonde and blue-eyed. It doesn't really matter. Like, it's just the Son of God appeared from heaven. That is not the way the Bible tells the story. Jesus had to be an Israelite because the promise that God made to Abraham is a promise that God never broke. When, you say, when Paul says in Romans, and Paul essentially makes the same argument in Romans, he says, in Jesus is the faithfulness of God. What you recognize is that God doesn't change plans. Sometimes our picture of the Bible, and this is why we struggle with why we should read the Old Testament, is we think, well, that was plan A. Well, plan A failed, and we're on plan B. And Jesus is plan B, so who cares about reading plan A? No, you don't understand. There has never been a plan B. God said, I'm going to use Abraham's family to rescue the world. And God fulfilled it in the most surprising way possible. That one from the seed of Abraham would come who was also the son of God, who would somehow be human and Israelite and God, so that he could be the only one worthy to set the story back on track. Are you kidding me? This is why Paul erupts in praise halfway through Romans and says, wow, the gloriousness of the gospel. How did you do it, God? The unsearchable wisdom of God. Because God doesn't change plans. God doesn't break promises. And God doesn't scrap projects. The danger of failing to see this as one cohesive story is we kind of think that God can, 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 can scrap projects anytime he wants. So he's like, earth. Ooh, tired of earth. <laughs> Let's throw that away. Let's do something new. It's so important to recognize that God does not scrap projects. And friends, isn't that good news for you and for me? That God does not abandon us. God does not break his promise to us, no matter how much we derail it. You're like, well, listen, I'm, I'm sitting here this morning, and my life has not followed the script. I've got good news for you. The whole Bible is full of stories that didn't follow the scripts. The whole Bible is full of individual lives and families that were a mess. Show me one good family in the Bible. Show me one solid marriage where it all worked out and it was all hunky-dory and perfect. There is, there, the Cleaver family is not in the Bible. <laughs> but what you have is a God who says, I don't care the mess. I don't care how off track it's gotten. I don't care how far off it seems. I can step into it and put it back on track again. That's what Jesus does. <laughs> Act 5 is the story of the church. Now, please, this is important. The church does not replace Israel. Sometimes Christians over the course of history have kind of said, well, we, we don't need to care about Israel because, you know, the church is... You know, that's not how we read the Bible. We read the Bible as the Israel story coming to fulfillment in Jesus. And then Jesus opens up a way for a new people of God that includes the Jews who call on him and us Gentiles. It's a both and a Jews plus Gentiles community. So we don't need the sort of the, the tragedy of Christian history in Europe in particular to sort of have this air of superiority to say, well, we don't need you anymore. Excuse me. Jesus brought their story to fulfillment. They still have a place in it. And this is important that we kind of get, get, get that right. Now, the church is this Jews plus Gentiles community, this new people in Christ. In a very real way, when you read Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount is like Jesus giving a new sort of constitution for the people of God. In a similar way that Moses gave the charter words 
on Mount Sinai. So Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount gives kind of the charter words for the, the kingdom of God arriving in this new people. And so when you read the New Testament, when you read the letters of Paul and Peter and John, you're reading about what it means to be this people. So what does it look like to be the people of God? Well, let's see what Paul said to the first little congregations. Let's see what Peter said. Let's hear what John said. These are the first few congregations that will kind of hear it. And then there is, in a way, a sixth act. There is a preview, if you will, a trailer of the final act, and that is new creation. So when you read the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the culmination of the story. So I told you the story in five acts. That's everything that has happened. But in, in a very real sense, the Bible is a story in six acts. Now I want to pause here and give you a few practical ways to keep immersing yourself in this. Because some of you are like, well, I want to, I want to hear more about that. Uh, there are two apps that I want to just recommend to you this morning. Okay, The first app is called Read Scripture. The Read Scripture app, if you look at it, it, it kind of takes you on a journey, actually, and this shows you Jesus in the kingdom, the people of the kingdom, but it starts with the creation story, so it kind of walks you through more or less these five or six acts, and it, it helps you read the Bible along that way. And so, yeah, I, I won't be offended if you download the app right now. Um, I don't get any uh, proceeds from saying this. It's just a great app that a friend introduced me to, and they use videos in here, too, that give you some backdrop about each book, and the videos that they use are from the Bible Project people. And so the Bible Project, if you're familiar with that, you can go to their website and they have a podcast, but they also have several videos. They're about five or six minutes. They're done like creative cartoons, but it's just, it's a beautiful way of visually seeing the story. It's very, very artfully done. So the Read Scripture Project incorporates some of their videos, but if you're like, I want to see all the videos, you can go to the Bible Project's website to do that. Okay, that part of the sermon was supposed to only take 10 minutes. Um, we've got a problem. <laughs> I'm going to give you the next three points very quickly. <laughs> um, if the Bible is a story in five acts or six acts, however you want to deal with that final act, and well, what do we need to do with this story? I want to give you three things. The first is that we need to enter the story. One of the reasons why we have to work a little bit hard at entering the story of the Bible is because we're removed from it in a few ways. We're removed from it chronologically. A lot of this was written thousands of years ago. We're removed from it culturally. We, we, don't, we don't live in this world, really. Um, we're removed from it linguistically, obviously. It was written in Hebrew, Old Testament, Greek, and the New Testament. And so it's had to be translated. We, we use different kinds of translations. Uh, we're removed from it culturally. We don't know um, some of the ways that they do things geographically. So some of the work that we have to do is to ask the question. Sometimes people will say the first phase of really meditating on the Bible is observation, is asking yourself, what's going on? What was the occasion or the purpose? What's the historical setting? That's where some of those uh, videos can help. The great New Testament scholar Gordon Fee said the Bible has eternal relevance and historical particularity. So it has relevance for our day, but it emerged from a particular historical context. And so it's important to kind of reach back and to say, well, what is that like? And, and what is the deal with head coverings in Corinth? And what was happening in Ephesus that would make Paul say this about women? Maybe these are to be read differently and through a cultural lens. And you understand a little bit about what it means to enter the story. And then 
Part of entering the story means immersing yourself in the narrative before you start looking for the imperatives. Immerse yourself in the narrative before you start looking for the imperative. See, some of you are very action-oriented, and you're like, well, I just want to know what I need to do. That's great, but slow down a minute. A story makes you slow down. And so find yourself in the whole story, in the whole narrative, before you start looking for the imperatives. A couple other apps that can help you immerse yourself in this. One is called The Bible in One Year. The, the same people that created the Alpha course that we run that Jay was talking about. It came from a church in the UK. Uh, they have also cre created this app called The Bible in One Year, and it gives you scripture passages plus a one-paragraph reflection. It's very short, and you can do it in, in a little while. But this is a way to immerse yourself in it, to say, well, let's just read it all through in a year. But rather than do it cover to cover, you kind of do it with three different sections. Or if you prefer truly an immersive way, our friends at the Institute for Bible Reading They've created an immersed Bible. Now, some of you here have done groups with the immersed Bible. Glenn Powell is a friend of several of you here. And, and, and this is what they've done is they've taken out all the chapters and verses. They've made it straight lines instead of columns. So it's reader friendly. How the Bible was kind of originally put together without chapters and verses. And they've grouped some books together that might be a little different. Like, they, for example, they do Luke and then Acts because Luke wrote both of those. And then they do all of Paul's letters. So you kind of immerse yourself in one vain for a while. Then you go back and then you read John's gospel and then John's letters and then the book of Revelation. So it's a creative way but an immersive way of reading if you like. And they also have uh, apps and podcasts that can do audio versions of that. Secondly, we need to let the story enter us. There's a verse in Ezekiel 3. I'll put it up on the screen. Ezekiel has this vision and an angel uh, tells him to take a scroll and eat it. And then in verse 3 he says when he ate the scroll uh, it, it was sweet in his mouth. And it was, it's a picture of how the Word of God is something that we learn to acquire an appetite for. But there's a little play on this in the book of Revelation when John is getting a vision from the angel. He hears a voice and the angel says, take the scroll from the land. And then verse 9, uh, the angel said, take it and eat it. And maybe John's thinking, oh, I know this. Ezekiel took a scroll and ate it. It was like honey. So John's like, this is going to be great. And the angel says, it'll make you sick to your stomach but sweet as honey in your mouth. And so verse 10, he says, he took the scroll from the angel's hand, ate it, it was sweet as honey, but when I swallowed it, it made my stomach churn. Kind of like eating Taco Bell at midnight. <laughs> it felt, sound like, sounded like a good idea at the time, but then it messed you up. We need to let the story enter us. It's not just that we enter the story, but the scripture needs to get into us. The story needs to enter us. And one of the signs that the scripture is really getting inside you is that it begins to convict you. It begins to mess with you. Listen, if you read the Bible and every time you read the Bible, it just confirmed all of your life choices, you might be doing it wrong. Because it's supposed to mess, it's supposed to make you think, gosh, am I spending my money the right way? Am I spending my time the right way? Gosh, am I really living in a way that's honoring God? How, and, and, and I'm not promising that it'll give you easy answers, but the wrestling is one of the results of re really letting the Bible get inside you. The wrestling itself is one of the results. The other thing to do as you let the story get into you is to pray it, is to pray it, to pray the scripture and not just hear it. And so an app that 
that I know several people have already begun using and I have used it this year is called Lectio 365. You know our friend Pete Gregg who speaks here every year on prayer and all that stuff. Pete and his team at the 24-7 prayer group have uh, launched an app called Lectio 365 and it reads scripture but then guides you in a reflection and if you play the audio of it you get to hear his lovely British accent reading to you. It's really great. It takes about eight minutes or so. And it's a wonderful way to not just read the Bible, but pray it. Let it get inside you. We're not studying for a quiz. We're eating food that will nourish us and sustain us. Sometimes I say to people who are wondering about what to do with their lives and what decisions to make young people, I give this talk is actually three, three one-hour lectures that I give at Summit Ministries every summer. And, and, and oftentimes I'll say to the young students who are there, I'll say, look, many of you are wondering what decisions you're making, what to do with your life, and you wish that the Bible would just be like a script or that God would give you a script. But there is no script. But there is a scripture. I know, a little bit corny, but you'll remember that. <laughs> There's no script, but there is a scripture. And as you take in the scripture, you'll figure out your part of the story. There's a, N.T. Wright does this metaphor of, Shakespearean actors. He says if Shakespearean actors were given a new Shakespeare play and they only knew four acts, they didn't have the fifth act of the, of the five-act Shakespearean play, they only had four acts and they told these actors, read the four acts and then improvise what the fifth act is going to be. They would be able to do it because they'd, been spe they'd spent a lifetime reading and studying Shakespeare. And so they would know this is how the story would end. Look, when you take in the scripture, you begin to understand, you know what? I'm not exactly in the same situation as Daniel in the lion's den, but you know what? I am facing a situation at work where I'm tempted to compromise. And you know what? If God could be faithful with Daniel, even in the midst of opposition, then he will be faithful with me. And so you begin to know your part of the story because you've taken it in. Right? says we read scripture in order to be refreshed in our memory and understanding of the story within which we find ourselves as actors, to be reminded where it has come from and where it is going, and hence what our own part within it ought to be. The final word this morning, the final point about the story, is we need to see Jesus as the center of the story. We've heard it this morning a few times, a few different verses, the, the New Testament, the Gospel reading from Luke. But here's one from John 5. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. There is a danger in reading the Bible and making yourself the main character. All that does is create a new law for you. So you read David and Goliath, and you're like, I need to be brave like David. What if you can't be? Or you read another story and you're like, I'm going to be awesome like Joshua. What if you can't be? Don't read the scripture as yourself as the main character. But that doesn't mean that you don't fit in the story. So this is what happens when you read with Jesus as the center. You realize that if you are in Christ, then what is true of him becomes true of you. You realize that if you are in Christ, then what is true of him becomes true of you. And so if Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, then in Christ you become a royal priesthood who can show forth the works of God. If Jesus is the one who wins great, a great victory, we get to share in that victory. Does that make sense? 
His courage becomes our courage. His victory becomes our victory. His peace becomes our peace. If Jesus was raised up from the dead, then we will be raised up on the last day. This is how it works. It's not a binary of like, either the Bible's about me or it's about Jesus. No, no, no. It's both, but it's Jesus first. And when you see Jesus as the main character, then your place in him comes to light. You see that now? It's a bit of both. This morning as we get ready to come to the table of the Lord, we recognize that it's Jesus who is the living word. It's Jesus who is the living word. We read the Bible at the end of it all because it is the book that testifies of Jesus, the word of God. And Jesus shows us what God is like, introduces us to the Father and to the Spirit. And so the end of all of this is not that we have a relationship with a book. The end of all of this is that we get caught up in communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Would you bow your heads this morning? Jesus, that's what we want. That's what we want this morning. We want your word to take root in us so that we can know you and be formed as your people. Come now.